good job with all those names, Jenna. All right, guys, keep your Bible open there to Genesis 16. We'll walk through this, um, this heavy passage together. Um, so as we continue our series, really draw near to the end of this series, our summer series called The Questioning God. One more week, and then we'll be back in Luke for the fall. But as we continue this series, um, we, we look at, we're looking at the questions that God asks of his people. And as we've said, God is not in need of information. Okay, he's not merely curious. Like when he asks questions, he's leading us to the heart of a matter, right? He is shifting our perspective, asking us something that will take us out of our kind of preconceived, what we're thinking, our, our narrative where we've kind of blindly and, and uh, doggedly assumed that this is what's going on. And God will ask a question that will confront us and, and make us pause and lead to insight and um, and gospel hope. And so today's question, though, I think takes us to the heart of a story that is a familiar story, right? But it takes us to the heart and perhaps to a different perspective on the story than we've ever thought about before, right? Because we know that we, we're familiar with Abram and Sarai, or, or many of you would probably be more familiar with their names that they're going to get in a couple chapters, Abraham and Sarah, right? But we, so we're familiar with kind of what God has done and is doing in their life and, and making a great nation out of Abram and promising to give a, a child, a son to him, um, even though whenever God first comes and makes that promise, Abraham, he's 75 and he's not yet had kids and it's, it's not looking good, right? And, um, and so, but God is going to miraculously give them a child and make a great nation out of them. And, and so we know this story is kind of the piece where Abram and Sarai take things into their own hands, right? They get impatient. God's not working fast enough for them, right? God, God said he would do something, but he seems to either have forgotten or he's moving too slow. And so they, like us, in those moments, don't do well at waiting on God, but instead take things into their own hands, right? Anybody else tempted to do that? We don't usually know it until we're on the other side of it and we start seeing the consequences come in, right? We'll rationalize it. We'll justify it. Well, this makes sense. This must be what God wanted. I need to do this. If I don't do this, then these things are going to happen. And so we justify it and rationalize it. It's easy for us to kind of look back and judge Abraham and Sarah. Go, why didn't you wait on the Lord? But you got to think like a few years have passed here since God made that promise, and there's still no child, and they're not getting any younger, right? And so we need to kind of see ourselves not over and against judging them, but really we need to see ourselves in their shoes and as the ones who are tempted to take things into our own hands whenever God is not working fast enough for us. And so we know that as a result of, of that, they um, decide that they'll go about it another way. And they have Abraham sleep with their maidservant, um, Hagar, and they get a child that way. And it causes all kinds of issues. And so the, the typical approach to this from pastors and preachers is to kind of uh, talk about how if we don't, if, you know, if we're not willing to wait on God and we take things in our own hands, then we'll make a mess of stuff. And man, the application, they're just rich. You can talk about a lot of different things from that passage. But I think what, what this question does, when we look at the question from God this week where he confronts Hagar and he says, hey, hey, where, where are you coming from and where are you going? It takes us to the heart of a, a different piece of the story that I think is often overlooked. 
Because we talk about the, the bigger picture of Abraham and Sarah and, and what they do to kind of make a mess of things. But what gets lost in that mix a lot of times is who? Hagar, right? Or at least the humanity of her. Right? You, you have, you, have you glossed over this passage before and, and failed to kind of feel for her? Failed to give weight to what happened really to her? And certainly our, um, our culture and the, the day and age in which we live, which I, I truly believe our grandkids will read about in history books, like the, the, the revolutions of gender and sexuality and um, a lot of stuff is shifting in our midst, in our day. But particularly... The Me Too movement of sexual assault, abuse, has really rattled our world in a significant way. And sometime in 2017, like that just kind of took over the internet with people sharing their stories of, yeah, that has happened to me too. And unfortunately, that, that, those stories just kept growing and growing into a really daunting and heavy mass of sin. But what got really even more haunting is whenever that shifted and turned into church too. And then there began to be story after story after story about how people from God's house, from God's organization, the church, have abused their power and have, had, have made light of individuals and molested or abused them in different ways. And so that's the, like, that's the air we're breathing. And, and in a lot of ways, that's kind of old news. And I, if you're like me, like all of that kind of happened, and it's so much, and it's, so, it's hard to distinguish with what, what's, what's legitimate, what's just news cycle stuff, what is, like, and so you, you don't know how to sort through it. And for some of us, we just kind of weathered that storm, right? And it's kind of settled down, and we don't hear as much about it unless it's an update on a, on a, um, a court situation revolving around uh, Harvey Weinstein or something like that. But, but we, it's kind of settled down in a lot of ways. But, man, it's, really, it's even come back up in the last week or two with a fresh round of um, issues from the, the, from the Catholic Church, right, and from priests and, and leaders within that organization abusing uh, lots and lots of victims. And so um, a lot of times we don't know what to do with that. But the reality is like it's all over and in front of us. And so I think as we um, approach today's story and we allow God's question to take us a bit deeper into the heart of the story, um, we can learn a little bit about God's posture in this. Uh, because while it's a, it's a bit of a revolutionary thing that's happening right now as far as um, being uncovered and the story, like God's not caught off guard. And in fact, God has been speaking to this issue for Centuries, And so we want to look at the story from, from Hagar's perspective, and we want to um, draw out kind of the damage that we do as, as humans to one another, uh, but more so the healing that God brings in the midst of that. And so we want to look at this story together, and, and we're just going to walk back through it, draw some um, observations out as we walk through it, and then we'll uh, look at some application points at the end. So back in... Genesis 16, hopefully you're, you're still looking at it there with us. Uh, verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had born to him no children. Now listen, that's a, that's a cultural issue. Like in that day, like if you can't have kids, then, then man, 
that comes with a lot of, uh, you, you've, you've failed, really. You're, you're, no one's going to carry on your name. Like this, in this day and age, like that's your security and your pride and your source of success. It, it really, what, what everybody wants is to have a bunch of kids and to be able to pass on that, um, that have somebody to inherit all that you have and all that you are. And so for them to not have this is, is a significant deal. And so we need to feel that with them. We need, to, we need to go there with them. And many of you, that's easier to do than others, right? Because while it's not quite the same from a um, monetary and security standpoint, it is still within the heart of all of us or, or most of us. And, and the inability to conceive can be a source of shame and fear and uh, bitterness. And, and some of you know better than others what that feels like. And, and so hopefully you're able to see. We're going to talk even more about that next week. Um, but, but hopefully you're able to hear the heart of the Lord in this and know that, that he also hears and sees you, though today we're going to go a little bit different direction and see how they mishandle that. So we want to acknowledge that that's a hard thing, and that's a difficult season and a, a, a life, you know, a hand that they were dealt to, to not be able to conceive and have children. We want to acknowledge that that's a difficult thing, but with the way they handle it, has implications that are, are much more far-reaching. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. So um, so she had a female. So Sarah is not able to have kids, but she has a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Keep in mind, Abram has the promise from God that he's going to make a great nation out of him, that he's going to give him a son, right? And so Sarah knows that, and so it's, it's from that that she goes, hey, it's not happening with me. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children, so go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. And I got to think at that point, like, Maternity, all of those things aren't like as advanced, so they don't know who's the problem. They don't like, and so, you know, she's kind of saying, and it may be that um, she's able to have kids. And so you, you got to think at that moment, they don't know if Abram's the problem or if she is or, or what's going on there. And so she says, hey, maybe this will work. And in that, in that day, not in God's arrangement, but you got to think, this is, man, sin has taken its toll. And these are not people held up as examples. This is where sin had taken people. And so in that um, area, the the culture that is surrounding where they are, it is very common for if the the wife, the primary wife of a man is not able to have kids, then a common practice is to take one of their servants and to make her uh, also a wife or a concubine or whatever. There's different names, but to uh, allow her then to give birth, but the child then would belong to the primary wife. And so Sarah is saying, maybe I'll get a child by doing it this way. It's, it's a different form of surrogacy. But even that, you, you start to see where Hagar is, is, is diminished in this, and, and you start to see how she is, is being treated. So she's, she's a slave for whatever reason or another, and that's not quite the same context. She's a, she's a servant. She works in their home. Um, and so, but they have very few rights, even less than a normal uh, a woman, certainly less than Sarai. And so that's, that's what's going on here. And so Sarai says, hey, <clears throat> why don't you take her and have um, intercourse with her, and maybe she can bear us a child. And so verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to her husband <clears throat> as, a, <clears throat> as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And so I want you to hear just the first bit of that. What was the posture of Sarai? Was there an engagement of Hagar? Hey, 
Would you like to be a part of our family in this way? Would you like to serve us in this way? What does it say? It says she took her, right? It says she took her. We don't do that with other humans, right? We don't, we don't take someone and offer them. Like we don't, we don't treat them as property, but already we're going we're gonna to see that that is the, the posture of this story and the situation that um, Hagar finds herself in is Sarah takes her and, and gives her to her husband, um, and so we don't know uh, exactly Hagar's posture in this, but we certainly see that um, she's not consulted. She's not invited into the decision-making. She is given and treated more as property. And so verse 4, he went into her and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, we're going to see as we go on, verse 5, um, Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong be done to me or done to me be on you. I gave my servant for your embrace. And when she uh, saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. So what we're seeing here is a, a really a explosive argument, an explosive um, reaction from Sarai. Um, and what happened is um, once Hagar actually gets pregnant, then she starts to look with contempt on Sarai. And, and that turns into all kinds of conflict and issues. And so it's, it's tempting at this moment and, and even somewhat like, you, you can say, well, she shouldn't have looked on contempt with, she look, shouldn't have looked on Sarah with contempt. Like she shouldn't have had had that posture, right? Where she starts to say, okay, well, and, and you got to bear in mind here. Now her getting pregnant v- validates that indeed it is Sarai that is unable to bear children, right? It's clearly not Abram now. That's been validated. So, so Sarah is dealing with that. She's feeling the weight of that. And Something switches in Hagar where she starts to look down upon Sarai. And, and so listen, a couple things on that. What we're going to see is that Sarai will, is now going to shift into abuse. She's going to shift into uh, the word that it's going to use later is uh, Abraham, says, Abraham says basically, hey, do what you want with her. She's under your power. And it, it says in verse 6 that she dealt harshly with her. Um, and, and the only other time that that is used, that word for dealt harshly, is to describe how the Israelite people will later be, will later be treated by the Pharaoh in Egypt whenever he is, is treating them as slaves and, and beating them and abusing them and dealing harshly with them. And so we start to see that no, no matter what happened on the front end of this engagement, whether Haggai was uh, you know, willing to go into this or not, we see that she certainly endures abuse from Sarah. And so it's tempting at this point to say, yeah, but she shouldn't have started kind of taunting her or looking down upon Sarai like she, okay. And so no, she shouldn't have done that, but that does not mean that she deserved abuse. Okay. That does not mean that she deserved to be abused by Abram or Sarah. What happens a lot of like you, you got to enter into Hagar's story a bit, and you got to go okay. If this was done to me, and I'm handed over to this man, and, and forced to sleep with him, and now I'm bearing his child, and my life is taking this direction whether I like it or not. Like those of you who work with, or maybe those of you who have gone through this yourself, know that whenever trauma happens to you, you've got to find a way to deal, right? Like you've got to find a way to cope with that. And what happens when, when you're victimized in that way, you, the power and your power and your voice are taken from you. Like you don't even, you don't know it. Like it's not this exchange of I'm going to take this from you now, but my counselor had to help me see how, hey, you lost your voice as a child. 
because something happened to you that you didn't want to happen and you didn't have power over, and then you were told not to talk about it. And, and so my voice was taken from me. And so when you're victimized, when you're traumatized in that way, you lose your voice, you lose power, and that's what's happened with Hagar. And so you got to think that she's just looking for a way to cope with this situation that she's sort of trapped in. And so I would have, I would have had some bitterness towards Sarah if, that, if she had forced me, if she'd uh, made me go into that kind of arrangement. So whether it's, it's true just proud, you know, pride coming out in her and she's seeing the future where she's able to be an heir now. Abram has great possessions and she's, maybe it's part of that and maybe it's part of this bitterness and resentment that she's seeing towards Sarah that is just coming out in that way. Maybe it's a combination of both, but what we see is uh, it doesn't, like it does lead to this conflict, but it doesn't make it right. It doesn't justify um, in in the same way that, and I've heard people say this terrible thing, like in my midst, in, some, in the same way that you, you don't get to say to someone who was raped that, well, they shouldn't have dressed like that if they didn't want to be treated like that. And you've heard, you may have heard someone have that posture, and, and, and we don't get to say that. We don't get to justify abuse and victimization based off of something that the victim um, has done. And so that, that is the, the situation that, that is, is come up here very quickly in the first six verses. And what we see is um, Sarai is now angry that, that she's actually gotten pregnant. So it didn't go the way that she wanted it to. So they, they've got a child coming, but now there's this tension. And so um, Abram, man, much like the first Adam, we'll talk about this in a bit, but, but he just abdicates his own responsibility. And he goes, hey, you, like she's under your power. Like she, she's your servant. Do with her what you want. So Abram doesn't own the situation. He doesn't engage. He doesn't lead. He doesn't engage his wife and assure her of his affection for her. He doesn't own their, their mutual responsibility in the situation. He just says, hey, do what you want. Deal with her how you want. And so that's what we see in verse 6. Sarah dealt harshly with her to the point that she fled from her. Now listen, that makes some sense. And, but it, and if you don't have the full context, that doesn't make as much sense. You got to think things were bad enough. And here's the deal. I, like I read several commentators on, on this and I listened to some other sermons because I wanted to make sure that I'm not reading our cultural moment into this text, right? Like I, I really wanted to, I wanted to make sure that I'm not seeing something that's not really there from the moment. And what I found, man, I found a lot. I found one preacher that, that really mocked Hagar and called her a gold digger and an opportunist and a, and a slut, like, because like, and I don't see that in the text. Like, I don't see that anywhere in there. Like, she, she, to the degree that she was victimized by being forced to sleep with Abram, we don't really know. But she was certainly abused by Sarai on, on the other side of that. And then really abused by Abram by his silence and his ignoring of the situation on the other side of that as well. But what we see here is things were bad enough that she fled. For a woman to flee, to run away like that, with, with child, nonetheless, okay, so she's pregnant, for her to leave the security of Abram's home and his establishment and to go into the wilderness, which is just desert and stones, like it's, it's not a friendly environment, like, like it's, she's going into the wilderness, which is the wild, like it's unsettled area, and she's headed, we're going to see she's headed back home to Egypt, and so that, that's a dangerous journey, like that's a, that's a last option. That's a last resort for anybody. And so things were bad enough for her to consider running away and risking her own life and her unborn child's life. So she fled from her. And so this is where um, we see the situation has gotten bad enough that she um, is willing to run. And so verse seven, the angel of the Lord then finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness. 
in the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, you're, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you're pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. So I want you to see for a moment. And whatever you have thought of the Me Too movement and whatever reactions you've had to the the victims of those things and, and the stories that have been told. Whatever your experience has been with the church handling those things, I want you to see how our God responds to this moment. This, this woman that is so traumatized, so tortured by her um, masters that she's willing to leave and run into the forest, run into the wilderness, and God meets her there. And here's what we need to say to those of you that have gone through abuse, whether that be sexually or physically or at the hands of a parent, grandparent, or a spouse. I think it's one in three women and one in four men have have actually endured um, violence at the hand of their significant other. Something like 15 calls per minute going to the domestic, domestic abuse hotline. And the church has mishandled a lot of those things, and we've protected, and I'm talking about the church at large, like we, not the journey specifically, but we've, we've been guilty of protecting the offender rather than the offended, rather than the victim, right, because of leadership. We've been guilty of, we, we're more worried about our reputation, we're more worried about the church and, and that, than engaging with the individual. But I want you to see the heart of our God here is he, um, he doesn't happen upon Hagar, Right? He's not passing through in that same level of desert. No, he comes looking for her. Right? He pursues her and he finds her. And it says the angel of the Lord showed up. Uh, many theologians um, believe that that's actually the pre-incarnate Christ himself coming and, and engaging in that way and, and um, meeting Hagar in this moment. And I want you to hear the way that he responds to her is not one of shame and disgust. It's not one of condemnation. But he calls her by name, and then he asks her her story. He says, he calls her by name, he knows who she is, and then he says, where have you come from, and where are you going? And, and, and that, that seems like a, a bit of a formality, but if you think about it, like even that is validating her story. No, like, she feels isolated enough to have ran away. I mean, and, that, and that's the reality of what abuse does to so many people. You, you feel isolated and, and your spouse or whoever tells you that you're the only one and, and nobody would know what to think and you can't tell and whatever. And, and, and that can be just overwhelming 
the isolation, the pain that comes with that, the lies that you begin to believe. And um, the Lord enters gently into her story. He calls her by name, and he simply asks her. And again, it's not that he doesn't know, but there's something powerful in just allowing her to tell her story, right? Allowing her to say, hey, I'm actually running from my mistress, Sarai. Which is interesting. These are God's people that God's chosen to make this great nation out of, right? She says, I'm running from them. God listens to their story, calls her by name. So some of you are here today and you've never dealt with, like you, you've never felt safe enough to tell anybody what has happened to you. Even in the, the, in the midst of a Me Too mo- movement, you have, have been stalled out and overcome by shame and fear and whatever it may be. So what I want you to hear from our Lord today is that he sees you. That he hears you. That, that's the beauty of, we see her posture totally change from such an oppressed and lonely woman that she's willing to run away. And then after God engages her kindly, she, she ends up rejoicing and praising God, saying, I have found the one that looks after me. This is the God who hears. She's the only person in the uh, story of, of, of the Bible that we see that gets to name God, that gets to give God a name. Every, every other time, it's God himself like announcing who he is. But here she says, you are the God who hears. That's what she, God tells her to name her son Ishmael, is that God hears so that she'll remember and be reminded every time. And so what I want you to hear, if that's you and you've been through abuse at any level, is that God, God sees you. That God has heard you. He's heard your cries. He's seen your tears. He knows the shame He knows the the pain that you've struggled with. And the good news is that he doesn't wait for you to find your way to him. God pursued, like God shows up in this moment to pursue her. And, and listen, a lot of times when, when something like that happens, we just, we shift into survival mode and we, all we know how to do is just to get ourselves to the next step of the day, to get ourselves to the next thing to, uh, to survive really. And so we don't know how to rationally go and ask for help. We don't know how to rationally like call the police or make the right moves. Like there's so many emotions and things that become like that's part of what happens to a victim is they, they think it's their fault. They're told that it's their fault. And so they think they have to deal with it and whatever. Like the, I, I'm not qualified to unpack all of the, the nuances of emotion and struggle that happens to an abuse victim. But what I know is God hears you. He sees you. He knows what has happened to you. And he enters into our story. And, and you may be like, well, he hasn't, like, he hasn't entered into mine. What has he done for me? And, and there's, a, there's a real legitimacy to that. Like, why did this happen to me? Why did, if God is so good and he hears and he sees, why did he allow this to happen? Why hasn't he encountered me sooner? Why didn't he keep it from happening? And, and here's, I don't know the answer to all of that. But here's what I know. Bible makes it really clear that he pursues us, that he comes and enters into our mess, that he comes and, and, and even think of the posture that Jesus, when he literally uh, 
puts on flesh and steps into our story, the way that he approaches and engages with people that have gone through things like this is what? Like they're humans, right? He engages them, asks them questions. He calls them by name, just the way that he does here with Hagar. He calls them by name. He asks them their story, and he listens, and he validates them as humans, and he invites them into healing. He invites them into a different future. So if that's you and you're here, like I want you to know that God hears you, he sees you, and he is pursuing you. And, even, and again, you may not know what that looks like. Part of you even being here on this day at this moment to hear this sermon is God pursuing you, confronting you, calling you by name and saying, I've seen it. I've, I know how you've suffered. I've seen what no one else has seen, what you've never had the courage to tell anybody else. I see you, and I'm with you. And the cross is the greatest example uh, of how he loves us out of that. That Jesus didn't just come and from a distance say, okay, you guys, like I'm going to make a way and you come here now. He entered into our mess and he, and he so engaged our brokenness that he went to the cross. And there, I want to read this quote from Diane Langberg. Here's what she says about Jesus. And you want to think about the cross is, is what Romans says is the, the ultimate display of how God loves us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. That, that man, even a, a good person, like they're not really going to die, but Jesus has gone as far as to give up his own life. And, and I want you to think about, like, we, we often talk about the forgiveness that, that Christ brings whenever he dies on the cross so that we can be forgiven of what's, uh, what we've done and, and we can get to heaven. But uh, you think about all that has culminated in the story, and it's not just what we, we would call that where Jesus uh, defers the wrath of God so that we don't have to endure the punishment that our sin has brought. That's propitiation, right? That he's taken the wrath and, and redirected it onto himself so that we won't have to endure that. But there's more to the cross, right? There's propitiation, but there's also expiation. And it's most easily kind of illustrated for us in the Old Testament ritual of the Day of Atonement, whenever they would kill two animals. Or they would have two animals, and, and one of them they would slaughter, and the blood would, would spill out, and they would offer that on the altar as the, the, the one that had to die for the sins of the people. But then they had another one called the scapegoat. And that one, they, the, the priest would symbolically place the sins of the people on top of that animal, and they would send it out, out into the wilderness, away from the people, far, far away, so that uh, symbolizing their sin being removed. And so we're familiar with the forgiveness that the cross brings, but we're not always familiar with the healing and the, the taking away of pain that the cross brings. But I want you to listen to this quote from Diane Langberg, the author of Suffering in the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. She says this, The crucified one is the most traumatized. Think of Hebrews where he says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize, but he's one who's been there. He's like he, he knows exactly what we felt. And she says it this way. He is the most traumatized. He has borne the World Trade Center. He has carried the Iraq War, the destruction of Syria, the Rwandan massacres, the AIDS crisis, the poverty of our inner cities, and the abused and trafficked children. He, is wound, he was wounded for the sins of those who perpetrated such horrors. He was carried... He has carried the griefs and sorrows of the multitudes who have suffered the natural disasters of this world, the earthquakes, the cyclones, the tsunamis. He has borne our selfishness, our complacency, our love of success, and our pride. 
He has been in the darkness. He has known the loss of all things. He was abandoned by his father. He has been to hell. There is no part of any tragedy that he has not known or carried. And he has done this so that none of us need face tragedy alone because he has been there before us and he will go with us. And what he has done for us in Gethsemane and at Calvary, he has asked us to do as well. And we're called to enter into relationships centered on suffering so that we might reveal in flesh and blood the nature of the crucified one. You need to know the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has borne the weight of all. Like he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that he could give us life, hope, and healing. So for you, maybe you've, you've heard the church proclaim forgiveness, but you don't know what to do with the darkness that you still wrestle with. You need to know that Jesus like invites you to experience deeper healing, to come unto him and to lay your burdens down, to, to run and throw yourself at his mercy, knowing that he says, blessed are those who are poor, blessed are those who mourn and who weep, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus says the gospel is for you. If you have been hurt and broken and you're so aware of that it dominates your life, the gospel has come to set you free from that. But then she ends that quote by saying that Jesus did all this to be with us, but also to set for us an example, to call us to live lives that do for other people what he has done for us. And I'm going to be honest, when I was studying this passage this week, and I think about God hearing and seeing Hagar and bringing um, life back into her story, it was hard for me. Because I was just really aware of the reality that that's not everybody's story. But yeah, he did this for Hagar. And he showed up and he spoke a good, he, he revealed himself to her. But then I thought about the children that I know that are victims of sex trafficking right here in the United States. I thought about the loneliness that they feel in those rooms being abused, away from their families. I thought, man, what does this mean for them? Like, can I really preach this with integrity that God hears and sees those who have suffered in that way? And I thought about those that are in the Middle East that are victims of the evil of ISIS and Boca Raton and the other terrorist organizations that take women and use them for their own pleasure and keep them enslaved. Like, and many of them have never even heard the name of Jesus. And that gave me a lot of pause. Like I, I'm, there was a moment where I, I did not know what to do with this text. I did not know how to preach this to you all with integrity in light of those realities still happening. Whenever there are people like Hagar that perhaps endured even worse suffering than her, that no one is coming to them. God is not revealing himself to them in the way that he does here. And, and I, that's, that's difficult. Here's what I realized. Part of that tension is resolved in God's response and instruction to Hagar. And even that is kind of hard. Because what does he do? He tells her to go back. He tells her to go back and submit to Sarai. 
Now listen, please don't use that as a way to place that on anybody that is suffering and is an abuse, like as a victim of abuse. Like that is not, like if you are being abused in your home or wherever you are, like the right thing to do is to run and wisdom is not to go back and suffer and be beaten and abused more, okay? That is not the, the instruction that God is giving here and that should not be laid over everybody as a blanket um, thing that the church says to do. Like the, there's more to the story here. The, the invitation that God is giving her is to trust him. And he's sending her back into a situation that is not yet complete. And he says, I see you, I hear you, and I, I'm with you. You need to go back for your own good, for your own safety. And then here's the other thing. He says, hey, I'm writing a story that's far bigger than you, and you can't see the end of it yet. So you need to go back. You need to live with this family. And things aren't great. We're going to see later that um, years later after the promised child of Isaac is actually born of Sarah, like that she sends like that tension rises up again and she sends them off. They're once again kicked out. But God once again cares for Hagar in that moment and, and meets her once again in the desert with her adolescent child and makes him a great nation, right? He's actually born, of tw- he gives 12 great nations of his own and like he becomes, her line becomes a, um, a mirrored blessing of Sarah. And yet they're not the chosen people of God, but it is a flourishing um, People, at least in, in mass and multitude. But what we, um, we see, though, is that God sends her back because he's not only concerned about her redemption and her healing, but the redemption and the healing of the, the whole family. And then, therefore, keep in mind what's going on with this family. What is God doing with this family? He is making for himself a people which he can dwell in and people that he can restore the image of God where there's justice and hope and healing for those that are broken. God is making that people and it's still early in the process. So he says, go back. The story's not over. And I think even in that, as we can now zoom out and we know the rest of the story and we think about God's heart toward those that have uh, endured suffering and we've got to think about where we are in that story. And what I mentioned earlier is that this is not just a gathering for the sake of gathering, that God has commissioned us as his people to live the way that Jesus lived. You think about the the, uh, the, the command that we quote all the time that Jesus, as he's leaving, tells his disciples to what? Go, therefore, into all the earth and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but then what? Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so we're, as church, like we're kind of, we focus on that making, like we think making disciples is making converts. So we want to get people in the door. We want to get them saved, get them baptized. We want to be a part of our church, but we don't go as far as to teach them to obey all that Jesus taught. And you zoom in and you think about, like, there's a lot of brokenness in the story of the scripture, but you, you come on and you don't know, like, like it's, it's hard to look at the Old Testament and know exactly how God values women and exactly what, what's going on there. You got to read the bigger story and you realize he does care deeply and he starts to draw out and reverse this abuse of vulnerable people that happens in the Old Testament. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he starts setting a whole revolutionary path right? That Jesus arrives on the scene and he starts engaging the vulnerable, the marginalized, the victimized in a way that nobody knows what to do with, especially the religious and political people of the day. You think about the way that Jesus engages with the sexually broken, those who have been abused by society. The woman at the well, he speaks up and he asks her for a drink. And just that is validating her enough that he's humanizing her, that he's acknowledging that she exists. And then he lets 
her story be known. Heck, he draws it out of her. The prostitute that comes to his feet and breaks a bottle of perfume and anoints his, and it makes, it just makes a scene in front of all these religious people. Jesus dignifies her and uses her as one that needs to teach all of the hard-hearted religious people of the day. And Jesus calls us to be a people that live that out. That we're not just ones who are saved and we tell people how they can come to church, but we are ones that enter into people's stories the way that Jesus entered into people's stories. So the, the resolution there, and it's not, a, it's not a comfortable one, it's not an easy one, and it's not a quick and, and clean one, but what, the, the answer that God has for those that are still suffering in the sex trade or those that are in the Middle East that are suffering under the um, rule of terrorists that have never heard the name of Jesus, listen, the solution It's us, the church. Like the way in which Jesus is going to meet those people and draw them out and bring healing is the church obeying Jesus and living like Jesus. That we are to be the ones that take the gospel where it has not been named. We are to be the ones that stand up for those that are vulnerable, that have been victimized, that don't have anywhere else to turn. We are to be the, a place that, is, uh, that victims can come to and Find hope and healing and not judgment. I don't know if you followed the, the Larry Nasser thing, but Rachel Denholander, that, that was kind of one of the key witnesses and, and plaintiffs in that case, she said, she's a Christian, she says the church is one of the least safe places to talk about abuse. That can't be. That can't be. Like, we're not being Jesus' people if that's the truth. And so just... So to the, to, the, to the victim, for those of you who have suffered, you need to know that God hears you, sees you, wants to engage you and love you and draw your, your heart out of that story and walk you into healing. And, and we would love to be a part of that. We have a, a counseling center that's, that's right in this other wing. I'm going to ask Tim at the end if he'll come up here and, and stand. He's the one that, that's doing that work. And I, I just want to invite you to let the gospel meet you there. And so that's to, the, to the, those of you who have been victimized and have suffered. To the church... We need to understand that we are the answer to those. Like God is going to use us as the answer to those that are, have been victimized. And we need to become a place really quickly. Here's how we end. We need to be a place where those, like, those who have been su- victimized and are suffering can find hope and healing that is given through the gospel instead of shame and condemnation. We need to be a place where people can tell their stories and we listen and engage and walk with them. And then secondly, we need to not just do that when they come in our doors, but we need to be a people who seek out those that have been victimized, those that are broken, and we need to enter into relationships that are really based on suffering, that are going to be hard, and we need to hear people's stories. We need to sit down with them and validate their worth and humanize them and, and not just dismiss them and not move past them. We, we so often only engage with someone genuinely if they have something to offer us, Right? Like if they, if they have something to offer us that will advance our own gain, then all of a sudden they're really valuable to us. But we need to be a people that, that treats others the way that Jesus has treated us. We had nothing to offer Jesus, right? Jesus didn't save me because I'm some varsity. Like I had nothing to offer him as a 12-year-old boy that he just came and brought out of the, the, the mess of fatherlessness and abuse. Like, no, I didn't have anything to offer him. And yet with grace, he came and entered into my story and he's drawn that out and brought hope and healing and he's still making me new. Like we need to be a type of people that find those places and engage with those that are suffering. And then lastly, we need to be, and I'm specifically talking to the men here. We need to be a people that don't 
sit back and wait on the culture to sort out its stuff. So often, the only time we're, we'll, we'll actually engage this or put any thought into it or speak on it is whenever it, it comes close to home or it, it's in our church or it's in the new, like it becomes a political talking point or whatever. We need to be a people that are advancing the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is one of justice and mercy. And we need to go forth with that. Like, so we need to be men. You need to think about the, the, the New Testament pattern of men that God sets up to lead his church, to be shepherds. Shepherds keep the flock from getting eaten by wolves, keep the flock from getting hurt. And he calls good, godly, strong men. He says, you stand in the gap. You stand there and watch the perimeter and you keep your people from getting hurt. And you make sure it's a safe place for other sheep to come and, and find hope and healing. And he commissions a group of men, he commissions his church to be a place that doesn't objectify anyone. Women, men, children. You notice the way that Sarah and Abram talked about Hagar. They would just say, your servant. That servant woman, right? Abuse is so much easier to swallow when we depersonalize, dehumanize, and just objectify the people. And you may not be consciously doing that, but our culture has objectified everybody. So that's, that's where we live and where we swim. So we don't need to wait until our children end up in a crisis situation. We need to be aggressively going out and setting up safe perimeters and boundaries around our family and around our church. And we need to be men of God that can be trusted with the broken Stories of people. And we need, listen, I've heard too many stories of people right here from Southern Illinois that have been abused by their husbands. Those are the stories I've heard. I know there's others. I know there's, it happens in reverse. But where the church has said, you need to stay with that person. You need to keep quiet. You need to submit. Listen, that is not what the Bible advocates like Jesus does not say go back and keep suffering you need to know that part of our role as elders yes it's to guard the teaching yes it's to preach the bible and it's to lead organizationally but if you are being abused by your spouse or by someone in your life and especially if they claim to be a person that follows Jesus and they're a member of this church that we are not okay with that and that we want to know and we want to walk with you so your husband may have made you feel like you're not big enough to stand up to him. That you can't tell or you won't be able to speak again. Whatever it may be, that, that narrative happens over and over again. And, and we are foolish to think that we can't get there ourselves and that there's not people amongst us that have those same kinds of struggles. And I want you to know, like we as elders, we want to we be the help that you need in that moment. A lot of times we can sit back and go, well, God's not sent an angel to me. God's not sent someone to intervene for me. Well, he's brought you here. He's brought you here. And if we're anything here, we're broken, right? We talk about it all the time. We just display it for you. I talk about it, and it's just, so if anything we are, like we're, we're a place where you can speak about that. And this is a safe place where you can come and get help. And you're afraid to go back home after you've talked about it, we'll go home with you. And we'll confront your husband with you. Like, just know that you have a body, you have a, a, a church leadership that, like, we want to repent on behalf of 
the mess we've made in the past and the way that people have been devalued and shame has been put on and the word of God has been misused to send people back into abusive relationships. Like, I repent on behalf of all of that. And we want to be a place where healing can happen, where the gospel can, can go forth. Men, we keep, like we keep ourselves from getting there by pursuing holiness. Like by pursuing to be like Jesus. That means we don't objectify women. That means we stop looking at porn. We stop talking about women as they walk by at work. We stop objectifying women. We stop perpetuating the culture of sexual abuse. That man, you don't think that's the root of this? You don't think what we're seeing come to fruition through the Me Too movement is really the, the harvesting of a crop of a generation raised on pornography, a generation hooked on pornography, and like that's what's coming to pass. And this, like the objectification of our bodies, both men and women, has taken its toll on our society, and that's part of what has pervaded and made a mess of where we are. You need to know that Jesus is the Savior. He is the good shepherd who put himself in harm's way so that you could have life and have it more abundantly. And abundant life may seem a long way away for you right now if you're a victim. But I want to invite you to let it start here by speaking up, by grabbing somebody's hand and saying, I need help. I need you to know my story. I need counseling. I can't go home, whatever it may be. I invite you to let it start here. It may seem a long way, but let it start here. I'm going to pray. Tim, if you would, would you come to the side? Tim is as our counselor, works for Sparrow. And I um, just want to invite you, if you're more comfortable going over there, I'll be up here. The altar's open. Um, I invite you to respond as the Lord leads. God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the hope that's in Jesus and not ourselves. We're grateful that you and your word can address and handle tough topics and we just pray that you would bring clarity out of this time that you and your cross would be bigger than the pain the shame the fear and that you would make us into a people lord that live like you that pursue broken people that are a safe haven for those that have been abused and where we don't wait for the culture to sort everything out, but we engage the way that Abram didn't, the way that Adam didn't, we engage. We step in and say, no, no, we won't live that way. We won't do those things. Lord, make us into a church that is like you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.